Okay, please turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. I'm just going to be looking at a few short verses, verses 2 through 6. The title of this sermon is The Mystery of Christ, and it really talks very little about the mystery of Christ. But there's a purpose for that. Paul has been talking about the mystery of Christ for two chapters, three chapters. And I think this is the closing. You know, you're going to get the, the final greetings that he gives at the end of the book, but this is really the, the culmination of the mystery of Christ. And if I were to tell you uh, what is the result of the mystery of Christ, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What is it that Christ has done for you? There are many good answers to that question, but for the purposes of the passage today, Paul is going to distill it down to one basic truth. Christ has restored your relationship with God. The anger and contempt that God held towards you in your sin has been removed by Christ. Christ has transformed God from your executioner into God as your Father. And you are now free to engage in a real relationship with God. Short answer, the mystery of Christ enables prayer. Colossians 4, 2-6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door Open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Paul's main point is just keep on praying. Make prayer such a high priority in your life that you will never quit praying. Romans 12.12 says to be constant in prayer. That's not mean every moment of every day you're always praying. But it's not to quit. Acts 1, 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Acts 2, 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Acts 6, 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer 
and to the ministry of the word. You see, prayer is not an accessory to the Christian life. It is the very beating of the heart that pumps the blood throughout the body. But unlike your heart that keeps beating even when you forget it, we must constantly remind ourselves that we must keep praying. And unlike the heart that continues to belt out its beats in natural rhythm, our prayers are often awkward and forced. I have no idea who Elizabeth Bloschel is, but I like her quote. We understand the importance of prayer and admire those who devote themselves to it, yet we feel incompetent, ill-equipped, and even unable to pray. We wonder how to begin, and once begun, how to continue. I do know Kevin DeYoung, someone I admire very much. Encouraged me to read this quote this week, because I was not looking forward to this sermon until I read this quote, and I thought, okay, I can do it. He says, I often feel like I'm struggling in prayer life. And I dare say most of the people in my church feel that they're struggling in their prayer life. I think that there are few things in the Christian life that we know we're supposed to do and we constantly feel like we're failing. And when you feel like you're failing, the last thing you want to hear is someone tell you that you should be praying. It's like pouring salt on an open wound. And I really don't want to heap salt on your wound. I do want to tell you that the Bible is very clear that every Christian must choose to devote themselves to prayer. There are no exceptions. This sermon applies to everyone in this room. Young, old, everyone. And I I read this and I think it's cut me to the heart. Prayerlessness is unbelief. You can write that down. Don't quote Mike. Just write down prayerlessness is unbelief. You see, when we don't pray, we do not believe that having a conversation with God is either necessary or worthwhile. And I'm pointing at myself as much as anyone else. We do not believe that entering into a conversation with God is the most basic fruit of the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Oh, we'll talk about how wonderful it is that Christ has forgiven our sins and given us victory in life and all these kind of things. But the most basic fruit of that is that he restores you to a relationship with the God of the universe. And I believe that every time you pray, this is from me, you are choosing to believe. 
every time you bow your head to pray, you are choosing to believe. You see, I think prayer is actually a fight to believe. That's what it is. But making the choice to pray is one thing. Cultivating a life of prayer is another animal altogether. It really is the last I'm going to say about the necessity of prayer in this sermon. It might surprise you, but prayer did not come naturally to Jesus' disciples. Think about that. They watched Jesus engage in prayer, and they saw in his prayers a quality that they did not possess themselves. And it was not just a few of the disciples. It wasn't like, oh yeah, Peter and John got this figured out, but the rest of us are struggling. All of the disciples looked at Jesus and came to him humbly and said, teach us to pray. In other words, they're saying, we know this is important. We want to pray, but we don't know how to pray. Help us. And I hope hearing that gives you a breath of fresh air. That if you're struggling to pray, if you can't get it figured out for yourself, you're not alone. You see, conversation with the God of the universe is unlike any other activity of your life. You can't see him. He already knows everything that you're thinking before you even pray it. That's awkward. He is a burning hot coal of purity. Hotter than the hottest recesses of the sun. If that doesn't make you feel uncomfortable... And what is more, he sits in silence while you pray. Think about that. You ever been in a conversation with someone and you do all the talking? Some of us might like that, I don't know. But it's like, uh, are you going to contribute? Of course God speaks to us through his word. And I would even argue that there are times when the Holy Spirit brings to mind in the midst of prayer the, the, the memory of words from Scripture. Like he, he, he moves us and, and recalls to us certain things and it's like, oh, wow, that's, that's wonderful. But by and large, it's not a two-way conversation. And I'm not even talking about the awkwardness of praying with other people. That adds a whole other challenge. You see, on the one hand, prayer is one of the most intimate activities of your soul. You know what it feels like when you're, you're sitting at Little Guatemala and you're having this nice little conversation with a really close friend of yours and you're talking about really important things and then somebody just walks up to you. It's like there's this awkward silence. Do I want them to be part of this conversation? 
And it's like, oh, well, that's what prayer is. You're talking to God, and there's other people listening. And then if that's not bad enough, you go to the other side of things. Because you can't see God, you start thinking, well, I don't know what God's thinking, but I do know what the people around me are thinking. At least I care about that. And so instead of actually praying to God, you're really praying prayers that you think might impress those around you. Some of us don't care. We just keep praying. Others just say, I'm not going to pray at all. And these are only a few of the challenges to prayer. Sometimes you get tired of praying of the same things. I mean, it's just the, the difficulties of prayer. It's no wonder that he says, keep praying. Don't quit. Because every one of us wants to quit. And I would tell you that every one of us are still amateurs in prayer. You don't think that. You think, oh, so-and-so, they, they know how to pray. But we're all amateurs in prayer. Think about Job when, when God finally shows up. Job was really good at prayer before God showed up, wasn't he? And then when God showed up, he's like, I don't know what I was talking about. So we need to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn from him. That's really the main reason why every week we have the Lord's Prayer in your bulletin. <clears throat> it's not a magical mantra. We can say it like that sometimes. You don't get to mindlessly recite it, and somehow it mystically unleashes blessings from heaven. Dan, you did a good job of explaining that this morning. Where he is? Somewhere around here. There he is. <clears throat> we recite the Lord's Prayer because when the disciples were struggling to know how to pray, this is what Jesus told them. Now, it's funny, I've been just randomly thinking about this all week while I've been sick, you know, reading Civil War books and, you know, whatever, watching old episodes of Blue Bloods. Jesus doesn't say, okay, first off, you need to get in a quiet place. You need to sit down. You need to write out your journal. You know, this is how you stop the distractions. This is, you know, he, he doesn't give them any of the rubrics of prayer. And tell them how long they should pray. From experience, I'll tell you that I've tried all different types of things. Writing out my prayers, speaking them out loud, you know, praying through uh, psalms. I mean, all these kind of things. But that's not where Jesus goes with his prayer. He says, you want to learn how to pray? And this is what Jesus says. The Westminster Confession, or actually the, large, the shorter catechism and the larger catechism, at the very end of them, each of those, they have like seven or eight questions going through the Lord's Prayer trying to explain 
what Jesus is saying in each of those phrases. It's very helpful. And I'm just going to kind of walk through that. I'm not going to go through every detail, not very pedantic, so to speak. But I, but I do think that there's a lot of truth here that we need to gain. So the shorter catechism, question 99, says, what rule has God given for our direction in prayer? Like, what's, what's the pattern? What's the standard here? And the catechism's nice. It says the whole word of God is, is of use to direct us in prayer. I mean, you can go all over the place to find helpful tips on how to pray. But the special rule of direction is that form of prayer which Christ taught his disciples commonly called the Lord's Prayer. And I want to just take a moment and, and, and mention what, what, what is meant by rule. I think rule is pattern. It's an authoritative guide. It's more than suggestions. It's more than helpful hints. But it's not, so, it's not like a harsh command. It, it, Jesus has been asked. He's trying to be helpful to them. He's not... He's not rebuking them. He's not exhorting them. They've, they've come to him, and he just wants to give them good, sound advice. And I think that's what we get here. The next question, 100, says, What does the preface of the Lord's Prayer teach us? The preface of the Lord's Prayer is, Our Father who art in heaven. And it says this this phrase teaches us to draw near to God with holy reverence and confidence as children to a father, able and ready to help us, and that we should pray with and for others. I'll take a little bit of time on this one because I actually think this is the most important. The preface is more important than any of the petitions in my mind. You see, a man must be brought into a state of reconciliation with God before any prayer that he makes can be accepted by God. I don't think any of us realize what a privilege this is. You are given access to God, not as your executioner and judge. You are given access to him as a loving father. And I like that phraseology. Christ has transformed God as executioner into God as Father. Because you are united to Jesus Christ by faith alone, the relationship that Christ has with his Father is now true for you as well. Unbelievers, anyone who is outside of Christ, cannot approach God as Father. You understand that? You better start thinking what a privilege it is that you have access to the throne of grace. And parents, covenant parents, have a privilege and a duty to teach their children from the time that they can understand the word father to teach their kid to call upon God as father. Even before they're old enough to even understand all of their sin and repent of their sin and trust in Christ. One of the beauties of the Reformed faith. Now I get it. The idea of father can mean many things to you. In our 
twisted and corrupt world, most of them are negative. But I'm telling you that when you hear the word Father, the reason why God wants you to call upon him as Father is because he wants that word to evoke in you the best feeling. See, if, if right now your, your example of a bad father to you or, or the harshness of this world or the difficulties of life or, or a father not caring for you, if, if that's what comes to mind when you think of God as father, it's not so much you need to come up with another analogy of who God is. You need to begin retraining your mind to think of God as father in a better way. Kevin DeYoung boils down father in two, two ways. He says it's authority and love. I think that's a good, good balance. Hey, Jesus could have said, you know, approach God as friend. Well, that'd be good. A friend can love you. There's no authority. He could have said, approach him as Lord. Not wrong to pray to God as Lord. But he says, no, you approach him as Father. Both authority and tender love. Fatherly goodness. When you pray... You need to approach him confident in his fatherly goodness towards you. It's not just so much that is God is good or that he is father up there, but he is in his attitude towards you a tender father. If I were to describe my journey as a Christian over 40 years, I would say it's an attempt to try to understand God rightly as my father. It's more than having right thoughts about God, which is the foundation, but it's having right thoughts about God's thoughts towards me. I was struck this week, of all places, studying Nehemiah. And uh, those of you who are with me in the study of Nehemiah, I know the little bell kids persistently and patiently uh, bear with me and Nehemiah. I've learned a lot from the book of Nehemiah, but I honestly can say that up until this point, I have not really been grabbed by the book of Nehemiah. Um, Nehemiah is a rebuilder of the walls around Jerusalem. Um, I love things in Nehemiah. That, that there's teamwork. There's hard work. There's personal sacrifice, all things that I like. Um, but for some reason, the study kind of has left me flat. Until I bumped into chapter 8. And what I found there actually stunned me. And I'm going to read for you three verses in just a moment, but let me kind of preface them of what's happening. Nehemiah has finally completed the wall. I mean, for two months, they have been just plugging away, trying to build this wall, and that's all they can think about. They finally get the physical construction done. And he starts looking around at the city of Jerusalem, and he says, man, it's empty in here. 
we got this great new wall. Nobody here. And he goes back and he finds the, the kind of the census of the people that came out of exile 90 years before. And at that time, it's in the book of Ezra, at that time there were like 40-some thousand people that came back out of exile into Jerusalem. And he's looking around, he's like, where are these people? And he's discouraged. He knows they're out in the villages, he knows they're, they're living somewhere in Jerusalem, but he's just like, the reason for building Jerusalem is so that we could gather together and worship. And there's nobody. And what's the point? And so he decides to issue this call. Send out a proclamation. Come on into Jerusalem. Come on in. He has no idea how many are going to be there. They build this big platform. He's going to stand on it. Ezra's going to speak to the people. The Mosaic Law. The day comes that the people come. We don't know how many, but there's a good number of people come. And this is the word. This is the words. They read from the book. From the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat. Drink sweet wine. And send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now I know you're familiar with that last phrase. But I had never read it in the context like this. See, I had read it. Your joy, Mike, in the Lord is your strength. And that is not what it's talking about. You see, as the people heard the law of God being read, they were hit with, oh, we have failed, we have failed, we have failed. Their hearts were grieved. And I think it was a godly sorrow, even a sorrow that was produced by the Holy Spirit. I think many of you might have even heard today, remain steadfast in prayer, and you went, oh. It is right to grieve over your prayerlessness. But do you know what God tells them to do here? He says, submit your grief to my joy. You see, God is the one that is happy. He's the one that looks at what has been accomplished and he says, I am happy. My people are being restored to me. I am ecstatic. This is a holy day. And right now, your personal feelings are insignificant in light of the joy that I have over you. And I thought to myself, you're kidding me. I don't want you to feel that way about me, God. I'm corrupt. I'm failing. I'm not who you want me to be. And he says, I am so happy. I am ecstatic. I am full of joy that you're all here today. 
See, the joy of the Lord for you, his people, and the salvation that he has given you, that is what is your strength. Now think about Christmas. I mean, we don't really have, please don't ever force us to have five or six sermons on Christmas, like just Advent. I mean, every, I just as a pastor, over 30 years, it's hard to come up with those sermons all the time, right? So, I mean, we'll have a Christmas sermon and we'll have a Christmas Eve sermon and, you know, those things. But I do care that you understand that the Advent season is connected to the truth of the gospel. You see, God provided his son and he's there as a baby in the world and God is just doing the jig saying this is my salvation for you and that's what gives you joy of a Christmas it's not how good you're, you're, you're doing right now it's not the, the personal joys that you feel I mean those will happen when we get to the new heavens and new earth it's, it's just look at Christ the mystery of Christ he has provided for your salvation I mean, how often do you feel the weight of your sin and you think that your Heavenly Father is only looking at you with a scolding eye? I'm telling you, if that's the way you feel, you will not pray. You will do anything but pray. I love this little passage because he basically, he tells them, go home. Have a feast. Drink the wine. Be happy. In a few days, we'll come back and we'll start talking seriously about your sin. But for today, rejoice. And you know what? Don't even let other people be separate from this. If they haven't prepared for this, go out and tell them to have joy. Give them some of your food. That's Christmas, in my opinion. All right, now very quickly. Probably should just stop there. The Catechism breaks the Lord's Prayer down into six petitions. The first is, hallowed be thy name. And I have to say this because, because really prayer is not about you. Prayer is asking, when it says hallowed, we're talking about, think of greatness. God, we want your name to be honored and considered great. Because that's who you are. I mean, if you turn your prayers just into a list of, do this for me, do this for me, do this for me, you're not getting the greatness of God. So Jesus says, the very first thing that you should pray is, hallowed be your name. Lord, increase in my heart the love and joy that I have in your name. Paul in Colossians here says basically the same thing. He says, at the same time, pray for us that, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I make it, may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So what Paul is saying is my whole ministry is trying to declare to you the greatness of God and the mystery of Christ. Pray that that keeps going. <clears throat> 
John Piper made famous the statement that missions exist because worship doesn't. The second petition is like it, thy kingdom come. Now, there's a ton I could say about this, but for just right now, you just need to understand that the kingdom is not here right now in its fullness. It will only come when Jesus returns. But we do pray that Jesus would continue snatching people out of Satan's kingdom and make them his own subjects. So we're praying for the gospel to go forth. Thank you for praying for New Zealand missionaries. Because that's what we ask for. We want the world to understand the mystery of Christ. Then, the third petition, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The catechism says that God, by His grace, would make us able and willing to know, obey, and submit to his will in all things. And I would just say that when you pray thy kingdom come, you're praying the big picture. When you pray just help me to obey your will, it brings it down to you personally. Lord, I, I want to obey you. Help me to do that. The fourth petition is give us this day our daily bread. And I love the little statement that it has. That of God's free gift, we may receive a competent portion of the good things of this life and, is, and enjoy his blessing with them. And there's two things that you're asking. You're praying for him to actually give you what you need, but you're also praying that you would be able to enjoy them as gifts from him. How often do we like, we're like afraid to actually enjoy blessings? never, ever, ever disdain a person's simple prayer for just something just so small but matters to them because God cares for them. Abby might remember this, I don't know. I remember being in youth group and one individual prayed for his chicken. You remember that? It's probably a little bit before your time. Not anybody here. But I remember people chuckling. And I thought, God's not chuckling. How often when you receive something, let's say someone else in the body of Christ is through God's great orchestration, he works in them to give some blessing to you, and instead of feeling grateful, you feel ashamed. Enjoy what God gives to you. The fifth prayer. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. See, one thing you need to understand is that from this, Jesus expects sin to be an ongoing issue in your life. Not just something that comes out of you, but he expects it to be from those around you. And he could have eradicated all sin from the church, but he doesn't. Instead, he gets more glory out of one Christian loving another Christian when they have fallen short. Had an example of this last night. Won't say what the example was, but somebody said, Oh, I'm refusing to forgive so-and-so, but you've forgiven me. And it changed him. 
And they began to extend forgiveness. And Christ was jumping for joy. In the sixth petition, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I love this. We pray that God would either keep us from being tempted to sin or support us and deliver us when we are tempted. This is one of those prayers that first used to just confuse me. And then it just was clear. If God ceases to give me grace or somehow shields me from temptation, I'm going to sin. Period. And if you think that that's not you, then you're missing the point. He basically says, humble yourself enough to recognize that you cannot do anything of good apart from me. It's a humbling prayer. You know, th- Peter, don't take me down that road because I might fall into sin. That's a weird, that's a weird prayer. What, you got a problem? You know, I guess hear him saying to me, you're, you're, what's, are you weak here or what? What's your problem? Yes, I'm weak! I need Jesus to protect me. The fault is always mine when I sin. And I can honestly say that that it's not a magical prayer. (laughs) Pray in the morning, lead me not into temptation, and I don't sin all day. (laughs) But I pray it constantly, going back to him. And then the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer. The conclusion of the Lord's Prayer. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. This prayer teaches you to understand that your confidence in any of your prayers is not in yourself, but in who God is. And this is where it connects to our text today, where it says, be watchful in it. In Colossians 4.2, it says to be watchful in your prayers. And it's not like looking for the answer watchful. It is don't fall asleep while you're praying. It's the Garden of Gethsemane kind of issues. He says, just keep doing it. Just your pitiful little prayers, just keep doing them. With thanksgiving. And you're thankful because of what God's already given you, you're seeing things, things that he's given you, you're thankful, but you're also thankful that every spiritual blessing is yours in Christ. And so you keep praying because he's the king, and he's on the throne, and he's joyful. And you're just going, okay, I'm going to keep doing this as, as pitiful as it might be. You see, prayer is the... the the most basic beating of the heart of what it means to be a Christian. The mystery of Christ is that he has brought you near to God. What is awkward for you is joyful for him. He loves it when you pray. Fills him with joy. Makes him happy. So let that push through everything else. Let it, let it like just say, okay, no matter what else happens, I'm going to do it. 
because it makes my Lord happy. Amen. If you would, open your hymnal to number 203, Heart Herald Angels Sing. And let's sing with joy.